Well, tonight we're going to start with our lesson. We're continuing our study of the prophecy of Isaiah. And tonight we're looking at chapter 8, beginning in verse 19, through chapter 9 and verse 7. Last week, we kind of uh, finished up our time looking at the last few verses of chapter 8. And depending on which commentary you look at, some of them place those verses with the rest of chapter 8. Some of them place them as kind of introductory to what happens in chapter 9. And so I'm going to do both. So we talked about them last week. We're going to kind of look at them again this week as kind of uh, setting the stage again for what chapter 9 is all about. And so the title of this lesson and really the bulk of chapter 9 is about going from darkness to light, from darkness to light. And so just a real brief outline of the verses that we're going to be looking at tonight. In At the end of chapter 8, last four verses, we have a description of the land of Israel in darkness and gloom. And that is necessary to see the the land of Israel in that context for it to make sense in chapter 9 when the Lord shines his light into that dark and gloomy place. And so in chapter 9, 1 through 5, we, we see this beautiful description of really an incredible transformation of from darkness into light. And all of that is brought about by a coming child, a son who is to be born. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, one of the greatest and clearest messianic prophecies in all of the Old Testament. And so we're looking at turning the land of Israel from darkness into light. And so beginning with uh, the last few verses of chapter 8, we see Israel in a a state of darkness and gloom. And one of the reasons for that darkness and gloom was self-inflicted. And that is, they were in a, a condition of spiritual darkness and confusion. We see in the early chapters of Isaiah that Isaiah is, in delivering his messages from the Lord, is pointing out the sins of the people. And how the people had rejected the covenant that God had made with them. And in rejecting that covenant, they had gone off their own way to do their own things. And that includes false worship, false worship of the Canaanite gods, the Babylonian gods, the Assyrian gods around them. So false worship. But also, they, they really departed from the covenant, not only in worship, but also in practice. In the way that they treated one another. And so they were characterized by selfishness and pride, violence, the rich uh, oppressing the poor, taking advantage of one another, injustice in the court systems, bribery. So all kinds of breaches of the law of Moses going on in their society. And so their their spiritual darkness was self-inflicted. They brought it on themselves. And chapter 8, 19, and 20 describes a situation of of spiritual blindness in which the people, instead of listening to the word of the Lord, which God had continued to send them his word, hadn't he? So not only did they have the Torah, 
the law of Moses, the books of the law. They had those in written form. They had them in hearing them when, when they would go to the temple or, or hear the priests teach on them. So they had the written words of the Lord, but then they also had the spoken words of the Lord that God was giving through his prophets, such as Isaiah. So they were not without a message from the Lord, but they were by and large turning a deaf ear to that word of the Lord. And instead of seeking the Lord's truth and seeking the testimony of his prophets, they were looking for guidance in all the wrong places. And so we saw last week in chapter 8, verse 19, that they were looking to uh, false ways of divination or false ways of seeking guidance, such as they would find in, in false religions in the ancient world. So, for example, some would consult with mediums and spiritists. It says, when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, and by the way, that, that whispering and muttering, some of the commentators suggested that that's actually kind of what it sounded like when these spiritists or mediums would try to call on the dead. That's kind of what it sounded like, just sounded like whispering or mumbling, incoherent sounds. And they also pointed out that that serves as a great contrast to the very clear words of the Lord spoken through his prophets. So Isaiah was not speaking in whispering and mutterings and mumblings. He was speaking clear words from the Lord. But these seeking false ways to try to get guidance uh, went through these spiritists and mediums and try to consult the dead. And we see Saul doing something like this in 1 Samuel 28. And the reason why Saul was doing this is because he was, he was scared, he was afraid, and the Lord stopped communicating with him through the prophet Samuel because Samuel had gone. Samuel had already died. And so that channel of the Lord's revelation to Saul had ceased. But really, Saul brought that on himself too, didn't he? So Saul brought that on himself through disobedience to the Lord. And so the Lord took off his hand of blessing from Saul And a part of that taking his hand off of blessing was also removing the direct lines of communication that the Lord had with Saul through the prophet Samuel. And so Saul became desperate. And in his fearful, kind of pessimistic, kind of skittish way of looking at everything, he had to find a way to know what was going to happen. And so in a very foolish move, he sought out a witch who was not allowed to be within Israel. It was against the law. Spiritists, mediums, witches, they were all against the law of Moses. But King Saul went and sought one out, trying to find out information about what was going to happen, about the future. And the Lord did not bless it. He did not bless Saul. He did not bless that attempt. And basically, when Saul did get a message, he did see a Samuel, a spirit of Samuel, and the message he got was only judgment that the Lord's rejected you and you're going to die. And so Saul did very foolishly seeking that. And here in Israel, in Isaiah's day, apparently they were doing the same thing. They were desperate for messages from the Lord. But the fact is they had it. They had Isaiah. They had Hosea. They had the laws of Moses. They had the word of the Lord, but they didn't want that. They wanted something new, something fresh, something unique. And there's a danger in our church climate today of seeking something new and unique, isn't there? And so, you know, there's um, 
all the time there's like the next flavor of the month out there in terms of what the next big mega church is or the big spiritual movement or who the the next famous mega church pastor is on TV and they've they've all got something new because people have itching ears and they want to hear something new but the bible is the word of the lord and and he's given it to us and we don't need something new all the time the people of israel didn't seem didn't need something new but they went out looking for it and they were living in spiritual darkness in spiritual confusion verse 20 says consult god's instruction and the testimony of warning so that's the true path isn't it so don't be go seeking from spiritists and mediums and and these other false ways of trying to find out the will or the of the lord or the future seek what god has already said in the testimony probably refers to the written laws of moses the book of the law that that's already there in written form seek the lord's truth and if anyone does not speak according to this word whether that be a false prophet or some other false teacher or one of these mediums or spiritists that they were consulting he says if someone does not speak according to the true testimony of the lord they have no light in them no light of dawn and so it's a spiritual darkness isn't it it's a spiritual darkness because they are either ignoring willfully or they've been blinded to the truth of the lord and they can't see it and they're going off in other directions looking for truth but it's only it only ends in confusion and so it's a it's a time of spiritual darkness and confusion and not only is it that kind of darkness but it's also darkness because of the lord's chastening hand on his people so we can see the darkness that they brought on themselves through their disobedience and through their their ways of seeking false ways of information or of divination but we also see the darkness of the the impending disaster that the lord had already foretold that he was going to send their way because of their disobedience. And so Isaiah has already been speaking about it. And in the context of chapter 7, chapter 8, what is that disaster that's coming? It's Assyria, isn't it? So it's Tiglath-Pileser the 3rd, his his mighty rule from Assyria and his his wanting to stretch out his influence and territory and Israel's going to cu- get caught up in it. And that is a part of God's chastening hand on them. And so when that army comes and that Assyrian invasion happens, there's going to be a lot of desperate, dark circumstances happening within Israel. And verses 21 and 22 describe that. So the people will be distressed and hungry. They will roam through the land when they are famished and they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Why will they be hungry and, and famished? Well, a lot of times that's the result of an invasion or of a war. You know, we today in our modern warfare, we attack with planes and missiles and bullets. In the ancient world, they surrounded a city and they besieged it and they basically starved it into submission. And so they didn't let anything in or out. And that was the way they would conquer a city. And so the, a lot of times hunger and famine, poverty was a direct result of warfare 
invasion in the land. And when they get into that condition, instead of repenting, Isaiah says from the Lord that they're going to be driven to rage. And they're going to be angry with their king for his lack of good governance, his lack of rule that couldn't keep this from happening. But also they're going to curse their God and blame it on God. But really they only have themselves to blame, don't they? Because the Lord bringing this on them is chastening. It's punishment for their wickedness. But it's a time of darkness. And so that's the condition that Isaiah is describing. And it would be within the Lord's right to leave it at that, couldn't he? If he wanted to, he could leave it at that. His, his rebellious people deserved that chastening hand. And Isaiah's message could have stopped there. But mercifully, graciously, it doesn't. And Isaiah not only presents a message of darkness and gloom that's on the near horizon, but then he also looks a little bit farther into the, into the distance and sees a time of hope and of light after it. And so this time of darkness that is coming, yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, you deserve it. But there's going to be a time of light and hope following it. And so... Verse 22, the end of the darkness says they will look toward the earth. They will see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. So you can see the overwhelming feeling, the sense of gloom that this passage is trying to communicate. And it's into that darkness, that desperate situation, that light is going to shine forth brightly. And so you need that contrast, don't you? You need that contrast of darkness to see the glorious light that the Lord is going to shine into that situation. And so chapter 9, verse 1, begins this description of the darkness turning to light. It's a time of hope following the Lord's chastening hand. And so in verse 1, really in verses 1 through 5, we see a series of reversals. Where where one situation is turned into a different situation, always from worse to better. And, and they're, they're, they're metaphorical, they're poetic, they're symbolic, and they're intended to paint a picture of the, the time of hope and of light that is coming. And so the first picture that we get is from a state of humility or degradation into a state of honor. So verse 1 says, nevertheless, there's that contrast, time of darkness, gloom, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. So chapter 9 verse 1 makes it clear that in the immediate context, Isaiah is looking at what's going to happen to the northern areas of Israel what we would consider the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. So he's been talking with King Ahaz, who is the king of Judah, the two tribes in the south. But in this particular description of the darkness and gloom at the end of chapter 8, and then the light that's going to shine into it, he's specifically looking at what's going to happen to the northern kingdom of Israel and that situation. And so that, that, that land... What we mark, what we is described as the land of Zebulun, 
the land of Naphtali. And if you remember, you can see back in the book of Joshua where these different lands were allotted out, weren't they? So we have these different places in Israel that were distributed to the different tribes. And the tribes that are mentioned here, Zebulun and Naphtali, they're, they're very high, very, very north in, in Israel. And in fact, they would be the closest, probably the first ones inv- invaded by the incoming Assyrian army. And so they're going to face the, the first wave, if you will, of this gloom and darkness, this desperate situation. But it's going to, there's going to, after that, there's going to be a time of hope. And what's amazing about this is that the way that the Isaiah is speaking here, he is taking a, a timeline perspective in which he is looking back on the time of darkness and saying, there used to be a time of darkness, but now there is a time of light. It's amazing when you think about that, because from Isaiah's, from his real time horizon, the darkness hasn't even arrived yet. So the darkness hasn't even come yet for the land of Israel from Assyria. But now in chapter nine, it's like he's fast forwarding himself in time to after the Assyrian invasion, after the darkness has settled, and he's now looking backwards on that, saying, that was your situation, but now there's a time of light and of hope. And the only way that Isaiah can do that is through the lens of prophecy and through the lens of faith. What does Hebrews 11 say? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so Isaiah through the eyes of the vision that the Lord has given him, is standing in the future looking back on events that haven't even happened yet and declaring that that this is certain by doing that. So there will be a time of darkness, but it will be in the past. And then following that, there will be a time of light and of peace. And so we see a time in which Zebulun and Naphtali were humbled humbled by defeat, but then there's going to be a time in which they are honored and restored. And ultimately, this prophecy is not fulfilled until the time of Jesus. Because in the time of Jesus is when we see a true light coming to the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. Where was Jesus born? Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but where did he live and spend a great deal of his life and even of his ministry? He spent it north in Nazareth in Galilee. And so this this region, Zebulun, Naphtali, this northern part of Israel saw a, a greater presence of the Messiah than even other places in Israel. So There was a time of great darkness and distress, but there's going to be hope coming in the future. Immediate relief after the Assyrian invasion, but ultimately true glory and light will shine into it when Jesus comes, the child that's going to be spoken of later on in the passage. So from humiliation into honor. And then in verse 2, we see another reversal of darkness to light. 
the people walking in darkness. And literally there, the Hebrew word is the shadow of death. And so that gives you a, a, a feeling and an insight into how dark it was. The shadow of death, complete and utter darkness and hopelessness. Into that situation, a great light will shine. That's an, that's an incredible contrast, isn't it? So it's not, it's not like it's a little bit dark, like around dusk, and you turn on a flashlight. And, and the contrast between those two is not that much. But it's more like pitch black darkness, and into that the sun shines at noon. That's the contrast. So incredible shadow of death, darkness, a great light, a brilliant light shines into that. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So the contrast couldn't be greater from this situation to the new that the Lord is bringing in. And then another reversal in verse three, from sorrow to joy, from sorrow to joy, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. So, Sorrow, sorrow of darkness, sorrow of defeat, sorrow of famine, of hunger, sorrow of this incredibly bleak situation transformed into a time of rejoicing. And at the time of defeat, they're going to be a small nothingness on the map. Just, just a remnant, just a few scattered here and there, many of them deported into Assyria and so, but then in the future, God's going to enlarge them. So it's, the, it's a scene of small to enlargement. And then from a time of sorrow into joy. And it's interesting, the metaphors that he uses to describe the joy. He says, like people rejoice at the harvest and when warriors rejoice after a victory, dividing the plunder. Because those are the exact opposite things that's going to happen during the time of darkness for Israel. There aren't going to be any harvests. There's not going to be any food. And there's not, certainly not going to be any victory over the enemy. The enemy is going to be dividing the, the, the plunder, not them. So the, the metaphors he chooses are the exact reversal of what's going to happen during the Assyrian invasion. So when the light comes, you'll be the ones dividing the plunder. You'll be the ones gleaning the harvest. So complete reversal of fortunes. And then slavery into freedom. Verse four, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. So he refers to the time of darkness, the time of the Assyrian invasion as a time of oppression, as a time of basically being enslaved and oppressed by an enemy, by masters, cruel taskmasters. And he uses a, a previous biblical story to compare it to. He says, as in the days of Midian. What does that refer to? It's the book of Judges, chapter 6, chapter 7. And the instrument that God used in that instance to defeat Midian was Gideon. Now, remember the situation. During the time of the Judges, the people were characterized by disobedience, weren't they? Disobedience, a 
apostasy, false worship, breaking the law of the Lord. That was the situation at the time of the judges. And what happened during those times of the judges, when, when they failed to follow the word of the Lord, the Lord allowed enemies to come in and oppress them. And so they went through cycles and different periods of time in which enemies would come in and oppress them. And during the time of the Midianites, the Midianites would come in and they would raid at the time of the harvest and they would steal everything and plunder it and leave the Israelites hungry and in famine. So it was a time of great poverty, of hunger, of famine. It was a time in which the Lord's chastening hand was pressing down hard on Israel. It was a time of fear. So you've got a man like Gideon hiding out away from the enemy in a secret place, threshing out wheat. And so the circumstances are very similar between the time of Midian's oppression in the book of the Judges and Israel's suffering under the land of Assyria when they invade. So oppression, hunger, famine, time of darkness, all as a result of spiritual apostasy. But into those situations, the Lord brought light. So in the situation of Gideon with Midian, the Lord brought light and he raised up a deliverer. Very unlikely deliverer, didn't he? Very unlikely rescuer. Gideon was no hero. He was no brave man. He was hiding out away from everything when the angel of the Lord showed up and said, Hail Gideon, mighty warrior. It's an incredible irony that the angel of the Lord would call him a mighty warrior when he's in fear hiding out away from the enemy. But he wasn't describing him as he was then, but he was describing him as he would be through the power and leadership of the Holy Spirit. So through the Lord's power and through the Lord's anointing of the Holy Spirit, Gideon would become a great warrior. But that's not how he was when the angel Lord found him. Similarly, the rescue that's going to come for Israel from the Assyrians in the context is going to come from a little baby boy. Not a likely place of deliverance, right? So you have Gideon, fearful, and then the Lord says, you got too many people, I want you to whittle down your army. And so he's left with himself and 300 men, right? Through that, the Lord wrought a great victory and threw off the oppression of the Midianites. Well, in this passage, you've got Israel afflicted by Assyria, and the Lord says, my deliverer is going to be a little child. But that child, he seems weak, he seems helpless, but that little child is going to grow up, isn't he? That little child is going to grow up, and he's going to become a great king on whom the government of the line of David will be on his shoulders. And so deliverance from a very unlikely place. But that deliverance will take the people from a position of oppression and enslavement to a time of freedom and joy. And then one more reversal in verse 5 is a situation of war turned into peace. And so we see the image in verse 5, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. The imagery is probably that of the Lord accomplishing victory as holy war. In essence, the Lord accomplishing victory in his holy war, achieving his purposes. And when that is finished, when that is completed, 
there will be no more need for war. It will be peace. And so the imagery is that of no more warfare and all of the instruments of warfare and the military clothing of warfare all burned up to be remembered no more. So from war to peace and prosperity. That's the hope. That's the light that Israel holds out to Israel. So darkness, despair, but the Lord's bringing a gray light. And all of these things are going to be reversed. And how's that going to happen? It's going to happen through a little child. The light of the Messiah. This little boy is the anointed one of God who accomplish his purposes and bring in his everlasting kingdom. And so we read about the birth of the Messiah in chapter 9 and verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so Isaiah 9, 6 prophesies the birth of a child. That's the third time in the space of three chapters that Isaiah has prophesied the coming of a little child, of a little boy. So 7.14, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, Emmanuel. Chapter 8 is the prophecy of Isaiah's own son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. His son is going to be predicted to be born, and then he is born. And then this is the third reference to a future child who is going to be born. And clearly, I think all of them, even though Isaiah's son was a a real person, a real boy who was born at that time and had a near fulfillment, there are elements of Isaiah 7, 14 and Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 that can't be fulfilled by Isaiah's son. Can't be fulfilled by anybody born around Isaiah's time. But there are elements of these prophecies that have their, their ultimate higher fulfillment in Jesus, in the Messiah who is to come. And so a prophecy about a boy who's going to be born. And then verse 6 also shows us, reveals to us the names of the Messiah. And these names are incredibly significant. And they reveal to us not only his names, but also his character, his attributes. And the interesting thing about this is that whenever you read about a birth story in the Bible, in the Old Testament, there's always a place where the child is named, isn't there? It's like there. a lot of times there's an announcement of a birth, some significant biblical character who's going to be born, and there's always an announcement of a name. And that name almost always seems to have some significance to who that child is or what that child is going to be or some meaning around the instances of the historical events of when that child is born. And so this, these names that are revealed here are similar in that this child is going to, these names describe him, describe his work, des- describe his mission, describe his attributes of who he is. So what are these names? Wonderful Counselor. In the King James Version, it separates these into two different names. It puts a comma between wonderful and counselor. Most likely, it's intended to be read as one unit because if you look at the the verse in Hebrew, there are are really four pairs 
of two words each. So you've got wonderful counselor, two words, that's a pair. Then you've got everlasting or mighty God, those two words go together to make a pair. Everlasting father, they form a pair. And then prince of peace, two words that form a pair. And so it's most likely that wonderful and counselor are intended to be read together as one description, one name of the Lord. And it's interesting because this name wonder or wonderful in the Hebrew is oftentimes used in, in contexts in which God is present. In which, say, a theophany happens or a, an appearance of the angel of the Lord happens. Uh, I'll give you one instance. It comes from the book of Judges, interestingly enough. But in Judges, I believe it's chapter 16, it's uh, when the angel of the Lord appears and announces the birth of Samson, who's going to come. And after, in, in the course of that exchange, I believe it's Manoah, asks the angel of the Lord, what is your name? And the angel of the Lord re- replies, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? That's, that's the same word. It's wonderful. Almost as if you can't know my name. It is wonderful. It is beyond comprehension. And so here is this description of this child who's going to be born. But it's clear from these names that he's not going to be just an ordinary child, is he? He's going to be wonderful, miraculous counselor. Uh, One who is full of wisdom, but not just any wisdom. Wonderful wisdom. Wonderful truth. And he's also described as mighty God. You can't refer to any normal human being with that phrase. This is, this is literally God the warrior. The mighty God, the strong God, the warrior God. The mighty God. And that really speaks into the situation, doesn't it? When it's Israel who's going to be oppressed by an enemy. But the Lord's going to send a deliverer. Yes, he's a little boy, but he will also be the mighty God, the mighty warrior God who looks out for his people. So somehow he's a son of David. Somehow he's a boy who can be born, but also somehow he is someone who can be referred to by divine titles, by mighty God. Same thing with everlasting father. Now, don't think of this in Trinitarian terms. Don't think of it in terms of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At this point in biblical revelation, that that triune revelation of God is not clear. But what this is intended to convey is the fatherly, protective, providing role that the Messiah will have. He will be a provider. He will be a protector. He He will take on a fatherly role for his people. And he will be an everlasting father, an everlasting ruler. Unlike King Ahaz, unlike David even, who died and went off the scene, this future king will last forever. He will live forever. So an everlasting father and a prince of peace. The only way we can have described in chapter 9, verse 4 and 5, going from enslavement to freedom and going from war to peace, the only way that can happen is through the peace that the Messiah will bring. And it will be a peace that will, be, that will transcend the whole world and it will last forever. So here's the thing about these prophecies is there are elements of them 
that are fulfilled in the near time to Isaiah and the kings that he's talking to. There are elements of the prophecies that are fulfilled hundreds of years into the future when the Lord Jesus comes on the scene. And then there's even aspects of these prophecies that aren't fulfilled yet, even from our time horizon. Because when Jesus came in his first coming, he is all of these things. He is the everlasting father, mighty God, prince of peace, wonderful counselor. He is all of these things, but he has not yet brought full consummation to his kingdom, has he? There is still a future consummation, a future culmination of the kingdom of God in which a full universal peace will reign, universal prosperity. And so there's some of this that's still coming. And then we see the reign of Messiah described in chapter 9, verse 7. Of the greatness of his government, literally his rule or his dominion and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. So clearly establishing the rights of the Davidic dynasty that God had established with David back in 2 Samuel 7. Now, who is this prophecy related to? It's related to the northern kingdom of Israel, right? But after the time of Solomon, the northern kingdom of Israel abandoned the Davidic dynasty. They followed Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And from that point forward, never had someone who was a descendant of David on the throne of the northern kingdom of Israel. Whereas the south and Judah, they followed the line of David all the way through to their Babylonian captivity. But the north, they left the the dynasty of David. But for them to be restored, they're going to come back restored as one unified people again. Israel and Judah, one Israel, one people. And not only just Israel and Judah, but the Gentiles too, right? The whole world coming under this reign of Messiah. And he will be a Davidic ruler. He will be the son of David. We've already seen this alluded to in chapter 4, where he was referred to as the branch. A branch who comes off from this stump or this tree of Jesse, the son of David. So he will be a descendant of David. And over his kingdom, he will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, unlike many of the wicked kings of Israel and Judah who did not reign with justice and righteousness, the Lord Jesus will. Full justice, complete righteousness, truth. From that time on and forever. Again, not just an ordinary king, an eternal, messianic, divine king who will rule forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This idea of zeal is the idea of the Lord's jealousy, his claim on his own people, on his own covenants and his promises for the sake of his own glory. So the Lord will accomplish this. He will bring it about because of his claim, his jealousy, if you will, for his people that he chose and that he is working his his program through. He will accomplish it in his Sovereignty in his providence. So the amazing thing about this is it reveals how many, many times in the prophets that 
there is a time of punishment coming, a punishment that oftentimes, and in fact, all the times, God's people deserved it. They deserved that punishment. They had rebelled against the Lord. But the Lord is so long-suffering, isn't he? He is so merciful. He's so gracious that even, even though he brings times of chastening and judgment, he does not abandon his people. He does not abandon them. And interestingly enough, this fits into some of the things that we've been talking about on Sunday morning in Romans 9. This, this idea of an Israel within an Israel that you can see it you can see it working out all the way throughout Israel's history. That there were times when God chastened his people strongly because of their rebellion, but then out of it, he brought a remnant. He's going to do the same thing with Israel and Judah at this time. Many of them are going to be killed, destroyed, go off into captivity, but many of them will come back and be the remnant that will, be, will serve as the, the stump out of which the new tree will grow in the land of Israel. So there is mercy from the Lord, even in the midst of judgment. He is gracious and compassionate. And I'm thankful that he can bring light into a dark situation. These kinds, this kind of language is exactly how the New Testament describes us moving from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, doesn't it? So we were all like Israel in this spiritual situation of darkness and condemnation. But through the grace of the Lord, he turned our situation of darkness and despair and judgment into a situation of light and hope and faith and joy and peace. And so God is, God is always the one who is bringing light into the darkness as John 1 says, when Jesus came, he was the light, wasn't he? That shone in a dark place. And he is the ultimate fulfillment of this passage to you. Jesus, the light, came and shined in a dark place. And he did that for them in their time in history, but he also does it in our lives spiritually. When he brings the light of the gospel into our lives and transforms our darkness into light.